Population Media Center has used entertaining stories to help 500 million people live healthier lives in more than 50 countries. From the United States to Burundi, TV to radio, human rights to environmental issues, simple to complex media markets, everyone is drawn to well-told stories. In this episode, we'll be talking with Bill Ryerson, the founder and longtime leader of one of the most effective, sustainable population organizations in the world, Population Media Center. Bill has the breadth and depth of experience in promoting a sustainable population that few people can match. We're delighted to have Bill share much of the wisdom he's gained in this episode of the Overpopulation Podcast. Welcome to the Overpopulation Podcast, where we tirelessly make overshoot and overpopulation common knowledge. That's the first step in right-sizing the scale of our human footprint so that it is in balance with life on Earth, enabling all species to thrive. I'm Nandita Bajaj, co-host and executive director of Population Balance. And I'm Alan Ware, co-host of the podcast and researcher with Population Balance, a nonprofit that collaborates with experts and other organizations to educate about the impacts of human overpopulation and overconsumption on the planet, people, and animals. Before we move on to today's guest, we've got some listener feedback, and this is from Joe Bish, who actually works at Population Media Center with Bill Ryerson. Joe is the senior advisor in issue advocacy. And he's the person who curates the contents for Population Media Center's weekly newsletter that goes out to thousands of people. So he says, just this morning, I learned about the latest podcast production from Population Balance, which features Eileen Christ. Eileen's thought leadership around population, ecocentrism, and global rewilding always impresses me. But this particular interview is absolutely breathtaking in places. I wish the whole world had 60 minutes to listen to her philosophical command of the issues at hand, her adroit language skills, and her ability to frame solving the human predicament as a series of ethical choices to be made based on considerations of all life on Earth, not just human self-interest. Thank you so much for that feedback, Joe. If you have feedback or guest recommendations to share, you can write to us using the contact form on our site, populationbalance.org, or by emailing us at podcast at populationbalance.org. And now, on to today's guest, Bill Ryerson. Bill Ryerson is the founder and president of Population Media Center, an organization that improves the health and well-being of people around the world through entertainment education strategies. He also serves as board chair of the Population Institute, which works in partnership with Population Media Center. PMC creates long-running serialized dramas on radio and television in which characters evolve into role models for the audience on such issues as family-sized decisions and use of family planning. Mr. Ryerson has a 50-year history of working in the field of reproductive health, including 30 years of experience in the use of social change communications in various cultural settings worldwide. He received a Bachelor of Arts degree in biology from Amherst College and a Master of Philosophy degree in biology from Yale University. And now on to our discussion. Bill, it's really wonderful to have you in the studio with us today. Population Media Center's groundbreaking work has been mentioned by us and our guests so many times on our podcast that we felt it was about time to let you have the floor to speak about your incredible work in entertainment educational media programming that you do at PMC. Of course, PMC's work has been recognized as some of the most effective on the planet for creating positive social change including an impressive reduction in fertility rates in communities exposed to your educational media programming. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Nandita, thanks so much for having me on. It's a great pleasure. Well, we'll start with a bit of background about Population Media Center's work. PMC uses something called the Sabido Entertainment Education Methodology in creating its TV and radio programs. Could you give us a brief history of the Sabido method and also an explanation of how you use it 
in PMC's programming? Sure. Uh, Miguel Sabido was in the 1970s until the late 90s, vice president of the largest commercial network in Mexico, Televisa. And he was both vice president for audience research and a producer of telenovelas, the most popular format in all of Latin America for TV shows. And he became aware in the early 70s that beyond selling products, which, as he puts it, is the purpose of commercial television, he was influencing other behaviors of the audience. So they were modeling their behavior after characters with regard to hairstyles and clothing styles and even names of children. And he became curious as to what was going on. And he got himself up to Stanford University and met with Stanford psychologist Albert Bandura, who since the 70s has been known for his work in identifying the influence of role models and what makes a role model more or less influential with the observer and how psychologically that works. And also the influence of particularly role models, but other inputs as well, that give people what he calls self-efficacy. That is the both the belief that they have the right to do something new and the ability to do it. So if a girl is growing up in the United States while Hillary Clinton is Secretary of State, they might go, oh, that's a job that maybe I could aspire to. So giving people the idea that change is possible is important to bring about change. And if people think change is impossible, they won't try. So Bandura's social learning theory about role modeling and social cognitive theory about self-efficacy are foundational theories behind the work of Population Media Center. So Sabido studied the tape of the interview that he did with Bandura and then read the writings of Paul McLean, a brain scientist who studied the locations in the human brain of different functions. And one of the most important findings he made was that most behavioral decisions are made in the parts of the brain that deal primarily with emotion. We pride ourselves on being rational beings, but in fact, most of our decisions are are made based on primarily emotion. So Sabido realized not only does this explain why people are modeling their behavior after our characters, but in fact, I could do some good in Mexican society while perhaps not losing audience share. And he created a whole theoretical framework for how to use entertainment television for social good and started with a 1974 telenovela dealing with adult education. The Mexican government's Department of Public Education had been running public service announcements on television airwaves, announcing their free literacy classes that one could take in the evening. And Sabido decided, okay, let me try to create a telenovela about illiterate adults. And he also recognized that the most emotion-based format in television is melodrama, so which he was already an expert at. So he created positive and negative characters with regard to the value of adult education, hmm. and then sort of middle-of-the-road characters who were illiterate and suffering from the consequences, such as poverty and unemployment. Right. And the positive characters and negative characters gave conflicting advice to these illiterate characters. The negative characters said, look, you're just too old and too stupid to learn. Forget about it. Learn to live with your poverty, hmm. which is a message many illiterates get. Mm-hmm. Positive characters said, of course, you can learn to read and write. You know, you're as smart as anybody else. You just were bypassed by formal education, but it's not too late. You can take these free evening classes and better your situation in life. So one by one, these characters did that, struggled through the classes, got their diplomas, and got better jobs, and their lives improved. And Sabido held back his most popular character, a grandfather figure, until near the end of the program. This was five nights a week for a year. And in the last few weeks, this grandfather figure graduates in a highly emotional scene where he breaks down in tears of joy because finally he can read all the letters he's gotten from his granddaughter over many years that he's been collecting in a box. Wow. And they follow that with an ad saying, perhaps you too would like to do what this man has done, and here are the addresses where you can register for classes. And Sabido warned the Department of Public Education that this might generate a crowd and asked if they could handle a big increase in people signing up. And they said, oh, no problem. You know, our PSAs are so excellent. We like your show. It's reinforcing our PSAs, but PSAs are so excellent. We signed up 99,000 people over the last year. So he ran that episode, and the following day, 250,000 people came to register. Hmm. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. One day later. 
one day as opposed to the whole year before. Wow. And by the time the serial ended, 840,000 people had signed up for adult education. Gosh. Oh, my goodness. So it was eightfold increase over the year before through a program that pulled in a third of the nation's viewers and was highly profitable. Mm. Now, that's a great development model. And this was something that Sabido then decided he would sort of make his trademark. And Mexico had legalized contraception in 1973. And he said, okay, now I've done adult education. Let me try family planning. Hmm. So he created characters named Marta and Jesus, a couple who were in fairly new marriage. They had two children. And her parents had had 10 children and lived in poverty, and they saw their friends falling into poverty as well as they had baby after baby. And Marta decides she doesn't want to have any more children. So she separates her bed from her husband's bed. And Jesus was not at all happy about this. <laughs> and so it created a lot of disharmony in the family. And then Marta finds out about the what we used to call the rhythm method. And so she mm -hmm. has a calendar of the month with one week X'd out. And she sits him down at the table in the kitchen and says, now, here's how this works. And that week we have to be disciplined. But since we're not in that week right now, we can go dancing tonight if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that sounds good. So they go dancing and get carried away. And then the following week, he comes up to her in the kitchen and says, let's go dancing again. That was so much fun last week. And she points to the calendar and frowns and says, no, no, no. You know what happens when we go dancing? And we need to be disciplined this week, as you agreed. And he said, yeah, sure. And she said, well, say it like you mean it. And he said, you can have your discipline. I thought this was a whim. I thought you would have forgotten about it by now. And he storms out on her. So remember, this hmm. is a soap opera. So right. <laughs> then she goes to her aunt and says, what do I do? The marriage is really in trouble. And the aunt says, well, there's something medical you can do that Mexico has made possible in the last few years, and you should take Jesus to see a doctor. Of course, Jesus objects because they're not sick, but eventually she convinces him to go to the doctor. And by design, Sabido had the doctor waste a whole bunch of their time talking about things they don't teach in medical school, like their spiritual life. Right. And then he refers them to a Planned Parenthood clinic. Hmm. And this was the whole point. So again, with close to a third of the nation's viewers watching, they sit in front of a clinician and learn about all the methods of contraception, choose an IUD and live happily ever after. There is an immediate 33% increase in the clinic attendance and a 23% increase in the sale of contraceptives and pharmacies. Sabido also role modeled advocacy. So he had characters who had discovered the benefits of family planning and smaller family norms advocating it to people who would not in the show. And then he ran the equivalent of an 800 number that people could call to sign up to become volunteer promoters. And 3,000 people called that number. So wow. thus began the Sabido methodology. Sabido ultimately did five programs addressing family planning and reproductive health and subjects like teen pregnancy. And during those five in the late 70s and early 80s, Mexico had the most dramatic decline in fertility rate of any developing country in the 20th century up until that time. So, And the UN recognized this with the UN Population Prize in 1988. Hmm. So at any rate, that's how it started. And there have been numerous examples, and I've been involved really since the mid-80s in the use of this methodology and increasingly in the measurement of its effects. And just before starting Population Media Center, I was involved in setting up a semi-controlled field experiment in Tanzania, where part of the country got the radio serial drama, the radio's the dominant medium there, hmm. and part of the country got music during that time slot. And otherwise, they got all the other programs dealing with family planning and other reproductive health issues like HIV prevention. Right. And so during the two years of the initial broadcast in all but one control area, 58% of the population reported listening in those broadcast areas, and 82% of the listeners said the program had caused them to change their own behavior to avoid HIV infection. Incredible. And the most common change they cited was reduction in the number of partners. The second most common change was condom use. So to try to find some way, to, a proxy to measure whether that was really true, we got the condom distribution data from the National AIDS Control Program of the government broken down by district because distribution is done in response to demand. 
And in the control area where they got all the other programs related to HIV, except this program, there was a 16% increase in condom distribution, while in the broadcast mm. areas, there was a 153% increase in condom distribution. Wow. I also, in that experiment, got the Minister of Health to have healthcare workers at ministry family planning clinics ask new adopters why they'd come and to give us their numbers. The data showed in the control area, there was zero change in the number of new family planning adopters at ministry clinics. In the broadcast areas, there was a 32% increase. And when asked why they had come to the clinic, 49% of the new adopters named the program by name. Wow. When we broadcast the program in the control area the next two years, we got the same results. So it wasn't that mm. people in the control area were somehow different. And then there was a calculation done in a paper on it published in Journal of Health Communication showing taking all of the costs, writing, acting, production, airtime, distribution, all the research costs, and dividing that total by the number of people who had adopted family planning and attributed it to the program came out to 32 cents U.S. Hmm. The cost per person who said they changed behavior to avoid HIV infection was eight cents. Wow. At this point, I said, okay, I know what I'm doing the rest of my career. <laughs> and I started Population Media Center. And after a few efforts to get funding in Ethiopia, I ended up taking Miguel Sabido there. And he trained our writing team in Ethiopia. And we've done nine serial dramas. And I won't go into all the data on all of them. But worldwide, we've done programs in 53 countries. We're just starting in a 54th Liberia. And we've reached a combined audience of 530 million people. Wow. Wow. That was such an incredible story. I thought we knew a lot about PMC, but I'm glad that you went into that level of detail. I just love the philosophy behind it, that it's based on cultivating self-efficacy and confidence in people to do what is great for them. Yes. And also that it incorporates the goals and concerns of local people into the creation of these characters and stories to enable that change. All of the characters and storylines are based on very intensive formative research to understand how people are living, what their views are, what the issues are, so that as they watch or listen to the program, they're recognizing the characters. And in fact, we've gotten letters from people, you wrote this story about my uncle. <laughs> uh, so people see these characters as part of their lives and, and in some cases, write letters to them. Wow. I remember reading about a show in India that was inspired by the same method. It was in the mid 80s called Hum Log. Exactly. I grew up there around that time and I remember the show. I don't remember all of the details of it, but I do recall reading about it recently that it had the same impact in terms of creating these really positive social changes in communities. And they ended up receiving upwards of half a million letters telling them to create shows that can break through the stigma of marrying someone that's arranged for them. And it had the same effect. People felt that they could identify so much with the characters that it felt like it was them. There's a book by two communication scholars on this program called India's Information Revolution. Everett Rogers, who was associate dean of the Annenberg School for Communications, and Arvind Single, his then PhD student, who's now a professor at University of Texas, El Paso, did research related to the impact of Humlog. The story behind Humlog is in the late 70s, well, all of the 70s, I was at the Population Institute running the Youth and Student Division, and a colleague, David Poindexter, was running the Communication Division. And he discovered Sabido's first family planning telenovela in 1978. And he convinced Sabido to go with him to meet Indira Gandhi mm -hmm. in the early 80s before her assassination. And they convinced her that, in fact, this was a better approach than coercion, which she had stumbled into. Right. And, in fact, the great thing about the Sabido methodology in general is it is very respectful of human rights. It's never telling people what to do. Most public health messaging says, use a bed net, wear a condom. This does not. It just models behavior and shows consequences, mm -hmm. good, bad, and transitional. And so she authorized the creation of Humlog before she died. And then a man named Manor Shyam Joshi, whom I knew, wrote this hmm. telenovela. And it, as you said, it had huge impacts in India. 
Love that. Yeah, you've had great success with this bottom-up changing of social attitudes and norms through storytelling and not a top-down policy approach. And that's definitely similar to our focus at Population Balance. It seems that in any system where you're hoping to have democratic legitimacy and buy-in from any populace, that a lot of the impetus for policy change needs to come from changes in public opinion that then creates pressure on policymakers. And as we've seen with China's one-child policy and India's forced sterilization, very unpopular top-down approaches. And based on your great success in this bottom-up norm-shifting attitude approach, have you seen other people in the sustainable population field realize that impact and greatly appreciate that impact? Yes. When you think about what China did in its one-child policy while it was in existence. The reality behind the situation was they used primarily persuasion. They had a million people mobilized to go door-to-door around the country to persuade people of the benefits of having a small family and in urban areas, a one-child family. And they then decided to tack on coercion. In my opinion, the coercion backfired and was unnecessary. They could have done it without coercion, and it created real controversy not only for China, but for the whole field of population concern that coercion might be used. And certainly, as we've seen in Europe and many of the Asian tigers, coercion is not necessary. You've got voluntary changes going on in many societies, and what can speed up those changes is effective role modeling, which means you have to have a charismatic role model in front of a large audience who can change what people see as normal. Uh, If I'm growing up in northern Nigeria and my father beats my mother and I have 10 siblings, that's going to be my norm until something intervenes to change my view of what is normal. And so, as we've seen in our own society with mass media, very charismatic celebrities as well as fictional characters can change what people perceive as normal. And they are in many ways more effective than having top-down authorities like government figures dictating what people should do. Right. And Bill, you've mentioned that violence against women in its various forms is the most pervasive public health and human rights issue. What are some forms of violence against girls and women that you've seen in countries PMC has worked in? All over the map. Domestic violence alone affects about a third of women in the world. So as a public health issue, it's probably the most prevalent. But we've seen in many countries we're working in in Africa, forced child marriage, Mm -hmm. which is a form of violence, marriage by abduction. So for example, in southern Ethiopia and in some other countries, it is still not uncommon for a man to grab a young, say, teenage girl off the street and rape her. And then to save the family name, she's forced to marry him. So we address this issue in some of our programs in Ethiopia. And we got a letter in response to one of these programs from a woman in Oromia, Ethiopia, saying, thank you for addressing the issue of marriage by abduction. Our own daughter was abducted on her way to school at age 14 and ended up married as a result. Mm. And we have been afraid to send our 12-year-old girls to school for fear the same thing would happen to them. When your program addressed this issue through the character Wu Balam, our entire village, most of whom were listening, came together and agreed to enforce the law against marriage by abduction, which we hadn't realized existed. And now it's safe for our 12-year-old girls to go to school. So that is a big issue. I mean, there are millions of girls who are not adult, not old enough to give consent or are forced into marriage. Female genital mutilation is very common in many of the countries we're working in, where the mutilation of the genitals is done in order to make sex painful for the woman in order to prevent her from perhaps straying away from her husband. In some countries, there are uniquely horrible forms of really torture, breast ironing in Cameroon to make girls less sexually attractive because they want to preserve their virginity. So it is an issue that not only is a human rights violation, but it also is an issue that affects fertility rate. Because if you're in a relationship with an abusive partner, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to negotiate contraceptive use or anything else. You're basically doing whatever you're told to avoid more beatings. So stopping violence against women is critically important. And there's some very interesting research on how to reduce tendencies towards violence among couples that are in conflict. So one of our advisory board members, S.D. Shantanath, had worked with a program called PrEP, 
Prevention and Relationship Enhancement Program. That's an American program for couples who are involved in violent relationships that helps them learn empathetic communication. So before arguing or dehumanizing the other person, they learn to repeat what the other person said and make sure they understand it. And then they can argue the issue as opposed to dehumanization. And so we actually had her train our team in Ethiopia in how to incorporate this kind of empathetic communications into the characters' dialogue so that they would become role models for the whole nation in how to reduce violence, because there's violence in so many relationships. So at any rate, it's a big issue. Yeah, and I uh, really like the connection you've also made between misogyny and this violence against girls and women. And we talk about that a lot in the different types of coercive pronatalism that are at play, you know, with piety and virginity and purity of women, but then also empower over women because of their reproductive capacity and girls. But the connection that you are making, that we're also making is not only is it a violation of human and reproductive rights, it's also directly connected to fertility rate. Yes. Population growth is actually happening on the backs of those with the least personal and reproductive autonomy. Exactly. And that's why we feel so strongly that we really need to get past a lot of the denialism that's in culture around population issues. So I really value the examples that you've shared. When you think about a child bride, take northern Nigeria, it's not uncommon to find 12, 13, 14-year-old girls married to a much older man. They have no idea about human rights or women's rights. They are being brought up by their husbands, and they're doing whatever they're told. And so, in fact, it's critically important not only to build their self-efficacy, but also to change men's attitudes about masculinity. And this is a broader issue than just human relationships. So I think much of what the world faces is the issue of dominance. And certainly Western civilization, and for that matter, most civilizations have prided themselves on dominating nature. Yes. And converting wilderness into farmland or into nice cities. And this whole idea that we can dominate nature and not live sustainably and that we can dominate other people and that we can go to war with other countries that we have a reason to want something they own is, I think, our biggest weakness as humanity. Yeah, well said. We agree wholeheartedly. So there's a common perception that we just need to expand access to contraception, and that will help women choose smaller families. And while we certainly agree that 225 million women that don't have and don't want a pregnancy and don't have contraception uh, access should be getting it. But as you've noted, uh, that was amazing, only one-tenth of one percent of women not using modern contraception site lack of access is the reason, which is quite surprising to me. But what are some of the reasons that you found for why women are not using modern contraceptives? We've analyzed the answers to this question in the demographic and health surveys that have been done worldwide. Hmm. About 95 countries have carried these out more or less every five years. And so they ask if people are using contraception, and if not, they ask why not in almost every survey. And what they have found is, number one, the reason people give is wanting more children. So desired larger family size hmm. is a key driver which makes sense. However, in terms of sustainability, in many countries, particularly in West Africa, desired fertility is above actual fertility. So to use the most extreme example, Niger has a fertility rate of 7.6 children per woman. And so that's the average number of children born to a woman during her lifetime. And when women are asked what they think is the ideal number, they say 11 and men say 13. Mm. So building more clinics is not going to change that. You can use family planning and still have 13 children. And if the men are the decision makers, they hold a lot of sway. So the same thing in Africa's most populous country, Nigeria, fertility rate is 5.7. Women want seven and men want nine. So this is one of the reasons these countries are mired in poverty. And, you know, the demographic dividend concept of the Asian tigers moving to smaller fertility and as a result, having money left over at the end of the month that wasn't used for food, housing, and clothing, 
that built capital in the marketplaces and then allowed the businesses to borrow and expand and then allowed growth in employment, drove up wages, created a middle class, created taxable income that the government could use to build infrastructure like roads and schools, all of which increase economic productivity. You know, that concept is well understood, but in countries where large family norms have not changed, people are mired in poverty because of it. So helping them understand both the health and economic consequences of large families is critically important. And to create popular models who make it okay to have a smaller family. But then after you take off the people who want more children, the top reasons given by those who don't want a pregnancy, the the 225 million you mentioned, they, they vary by country, but they're more or less in this order. Opposition, personal, spousal, or religious, and fear of health effects. So in some places, particularly in some churches, you can find out the belief of the priest that condoms increase your chance of getting AIDS and that you're better off having unprotected sex because for reasons that few people can explain, they're opposed to artificial methods of contraception. There are rumors that the IUD will migrate up and stop the heart from beating. And a lot of this misinformation is intentionally spread. And we know in our own society how easy it is to spread Mm -hmm. misinformation. So people who have opposition to family planning for whatever reason are doing this. And so these are the, the top reasons. And then something that sort of underlies all of this is fatalism. And this was the number one reason given in Pakistan. It is up to God how many children I have. I have no say in the matter. So the issue is in part building self-efficacy, giving people the belief that they do have the right to determine a number and then to take steps to achieve that number as opposed to throwing up their hands and being fatalistic. So as you said, those are often more than half, those cultural and informational factors of the reasons given for non-use among those who are not using contraception and don't want a pregnancy. While in most countries, less than 1% cite lack of access, less than 1% cite cost. Now, cost might become more of a factor or lack of access if those other barriers were removed. And so it's not unimportant to expand access to family planning methods and the range of methods and accessibility of clinics and so on. But the critical need first is to remove misinformation about safety and effectiveness and to help people understand that whether their husband is opposed or not, they have the right to take steps to determine their own family life. So you would have those in your programs where some character thinks, I can't use this contraception because of X, Y, or Z, and the other character corrects? Exactly. I would say in terms of what we're addressing with regard to planning one's family life, these are the major issues we're addressing with misinformation and the opposition. I mean, for example, in northern Nigeria, which is conservative Islamic region of Nigeria, some religious leaders speak out against family planning. Some support it. It's not like the Catholic Church. You know, it varies. But what we did in our program was mention the official finding from Al-Aram University in Cairo, that basically said, while the Quran was written 700 years ago and predated modern contraceptives, it does command women to breastfeed their infants for at least two years. Mm -hmm. And if, particularly in a low-nutrition society, a pregnancy occurs, the breastfeeding may be interrupted. Therefore, the Quran inherently endorses family planning. And that's an official finding. So when religious leaders in northern Nigeria found that out, they said, oh, good to know. So, you know, we can reach not only the public, but leaders who may also be listening to the serialized dramas. And in the case of that program, 71% of the population in Kano, Kaduna, Katsina, and Sokoto states reported listening to the program at least weekly. And at 11 clinics that asked new family planning adopters why they had come, 67% of them named the program. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that was in northern Nigeria? Yes. Wow. We've done several programs in northern Nigeria. Yeah. And this fact that you shared about the kind of embedded messaging in the Quran about family planning and birth spacing through breastfeeding for a couple of years, that was also reinforced by Dr. S.Y. Qureshi. He recently did a podcast episode with us. 
he wrote this book based on 50 years of census research to show that a lot of the information out there about Muslim high fertility rates are being driven by what's being said in the Quran. He went and analyzed all of the different verses of the Quran himself, compared it to the data of was the fertility really higher? And he was looking at specifically in India, because that's where a lot of the nationalistic sentiment is being raised up again, you know, by the Hindu nationalists. And he literally said the exact same thing is, it's not just a propaganda that spread across Hindu nationalists, but a lot of Muslims believe that too. And so there's just mm -hmm. misinformation overload all across the countries. You mix that up with illiteracy rates being so high and people are more likely to believe what's being shared, you know, culturally in, in terms of social norms. Yeah. You know, when you look at the global data, just under 50% of the world's population is still illiterate. Right. And so putting out brochures and informational pieces is not all that effective in reaching them. But religious leaders, community leaders, spouses, and charismatic characters can all have huge influences. And in fact, the charismatic characters can have influences on the real leaders. So right. we have seen this in many of the countries where we're working. Yeah, that's great. And of course, the recurring theme that I'm hearing come up in your work, which overlaps so much with our work, is social norms and conformity. The pressure to conform to social norms in order to be seen as quote-unquote normal. And yes. just like you said, if the desired fertility rate within a particular community is seven, then you ask how many kids she wants and she'll say something around that number. Yes. So, you know, we see that a lot in challenging pronatalist beliefs around the role that pronatalist pressures play as a result of religious pressures, political pressures, ethnocentrism, and all of the different ways in which people are being manipulated, including being given misinformation about contraceptives. And, you know, we're trying to go even a little bit deeper, especially within the North American context or the Western context is at population balance, one of our major concerns is the social pressure that girls and women face to accept the singular role of motherhood to the exclusion of other roles in life. And uh, sometimes that shows up in the stigmatization of infertility, childlessness, people who make other family choices such as adoption, uh, or people who choose not to have children or have small families in communities where the large family is a norm. Are you also engaging through PMC programming to challenge some of these other pronatalist social pressures, such as destigmatizing childlessness or infertility, etc.? Yes. And back to conformism, when you think about the role of conformism in human societies, it has a very important role. In any early human society, one conformed in order to be accepted, not be ostracized, which could be a death sentence, mm -hmm. to find a mate, to find a job. And all of those things are still important, but it leads to maladaptation, where big institutions like churches start using that sense of you have to do this to fit in to get people to follow what they want. And so changing concepts with regard to such things as choosing to be child-free, which my wife and I did in the 1970s and got written up in the newspaper because we were such an oddball couple for having made that decision and made it public. And infertility and other issues, you know, is something that I see a lot in very traditional societies where a man has the right to leave his wife and take a new one if she doesn't produce not only a child, but doesn't produce a son. Hmm. And, you know, changing the whole concept of what is the relationship for and what are the rights of the woman to have a fulfilling life is critically important and to get men on board with that because in many tradition-bound societies, men see their role as being the taskmaster. Right. So indeed, in each country, and this goes back to the Sabido methodology, we have to start where the audience is. Mm -hmm. So 
in a place like Nigeria, we wouldn't necessarily do a program about the child-free lifestyle right. as a starting point because when people do change attitudes and behavior, it's often in baby steps. So mm -hmm. our transitional characters take baby steps and they make mistakes along the way and suffer consequences and then they get back on the path towards positive and healthful behavior. But we, you know, as I said, when we worked in Sudan, we're not parachuting Gloria Steinem into <laughs> Sudan, even though she's on our program advisory board, because the radios would be turned off. Right. And in fact, the head of Radio Obderman was very upset that his wife was listening to the program and asking him some tough questions. <laughs> and he wanted to take it off the air. And the minister of communication said, nope, this is in line with Sudan's policies. You'll keep it on the air. So, you know, it's very important to move an audience at a rate that does not create backlash. Of course. And it's one of the great things about the Sabido methodology is we've never had controversy. We've never had public outcry over the content because they see it as being about their lives. And they learn from the characters. They're aware they're learning from the characters, but they're not objecting because they're being entertained. And there are lots of cliffhangers and love triangles and all the things that keep people <laughs> tuning in over months and years. But we're not trying to move them from A to Z in one step. And this is really the mistake some people in communications have made, and some people in reproductive health, of, well, let's start where Gloria Steinem would start and present this to the people of Sudan. Yeah. And it just can create backlash. So we really see moving in baby steps is a far better way to bring about permanent change. That makes so much sense. Yeah, you had noted earlier how you're trying to redefine masculinity and femininity, which is definitely a part of pushing back against some of those pronatalist social pressures. And I'm wondering what, what examples of programming PMC has had that's helped change those rigid gender roles? There are more than I can tell you, but yeah. I'll just give you one statistic. One of our programs in Ethiopia modeled a woman running for higher office, and the storyline came against a backdrop of a baseline survey that showed only 33% of men thought it was even appropriate for a woman to seek higher office. Wow. That program pulled in half the population of the country. By the end of the program, male listeners had doubled their acceptance of women running for higher office to 66%. Wow. So there are many examples, both at the family level and at the societal level, that we've built into these storylines to show that women have not only equal capability, but equal rights to achieve leadership roles. Yeah, those are really staggering stats. One of the strongest perpetuation of pronatalism comes through religion, religious doctrine. And you've spoken at length about that in terms of spreading misinformation about contraceptives, etc. But religion is also very invested in maintaining traditional gender roles of masculinity and femininity and heteronormative relationships, men and women get married so that they can have large families. How have you worked with religious authorities, if at all? There's an interesting story. We worked in Papua New Guinea with two programs, and there is a Catholic nun who was known for walking from village to village in the mountains of Papua New Guinea with a backpack open on her back full of condoms, and people would come out and help themselves. <laughs> And she was called in by her superiors and challenged on this. And the response was, Father, I have seen nothing because it was behind her. <laughs> but there are religious leaders who realize that the theology about large family size, the idea of growing the membership and the paying membership is not sustainable. And so some of them work from the inside. In Ethiopia, we've done a long campaign with religious leaders, both Orthodox Christian and Muslim leaders around the issue of FGM mm -hmm. and female genital mutilation. And with great success, the, these leaders who have attended workshops we've held have then gone to their followings and preached to them about the fact that there is no basis in either Islam or Christianity for this practice. Uh, it is really one done to suppress women. Mm -hmm. So we have also worked with Islamic leaders in, in northern Nigeria, as I mentioned in the storyline, but also directly with religious leaders there to help them understand the Quranic endorsement of family planning. Mm -hmm. We're not primarily an advocacy organization, but certainly we 
recognize that religious leaders and village leaders, both, are very important for bringing about permanent change in health behaviors. Definitely. I mean, with this such a large majority of global population being religiously affiliated somehow, that's, you know, one of the largest forms of socialization that is happening in culture. Have you ever had any kind of backlash from any of your shows coming directly from religious authorities? No major backlash. We've had one person speak out. This was in Nigeria, and his superior informed him that this was an official Quranic finding, and he straightened up. But there was no public protest. We've never had public controversy about any of the shows, even in the U.S. You know, we did a show that became the longest-running program in the history of the network Hulu, dealing with teen pregnancy among American Hispanics, called East Los High. And by the way, if you're a subscriber to Hulu, you can still watch this. It's 60-some episodes that are in their archives. And in season one, the character Jessie has an unwanted pregnancy, and she wants to go to college. And after hemming and hawing and getting counseling over and over from a lovely Planned Parenthood worker, finally decides to have an abortion. Hmm. There was no controversy around this because Mm -hmm. it was her decision. We weren't telling the audience what they should do. Mm -hmm. Right. So we've heard from many people seeking social change that giving people information and data is never enough and that the power of stories, metaphors, images, simplifying frames of understanding can be very powerful. Now, you were trained as a biologist, right? And that involved a much more objective and personal methods of knowing and learning about the world. Were you surprised at the power of story to change people's attitudes and behavior? Totally. I can tell you when I first heard about Sabido's family planning telenovela, I laughed. I said, soap operas are horrible programs. Why would anybody do that? This is a serious subject. We need good information. And like most academically trained people, I thought you just give people the information they need and they'll act on it. Well, when you think about an inconvenient truth, what it gave people was a lot of information, tried to make them into climate scientists and left a lot of depressed people who had no idea of, therefore, what do we do? Right. And what is much more important than, although it's not unimportant to educate people, what's much more important is to help people see at a personal level what they can do and to see role models who help them walk through the changes they need to make. So they have a path forward. And so on the population issue, we're not trying to educate our audiences about global demographic trends. We're talking about family life and what creates health and happiness and rights for people in their lives. And the same thing is true with this, that just giving people information while motivating to people like me is not motivating to a lot of people. And in fact, information inherently for some people is quite boring. So I think what I've more than anything brought to the Sabido methodology is the scientific measure of its impact Hmm. right? and showing that in fact, there's no more cost-effective strategy. Even though a two-year serialized drama is expensive, on a cost per behavior change, there's nothing more cost-effective. Right. That power of story to create good and also bad throughout history. I think in Rwanda, right, the uh, Hutus used various stories through their radio. I'm not sure if they were using soap operas, but they were definitely in a process of dehumanization of the Tutsis. Yeah, they weren't using soap operas, but they did dehumanization. And, you know, American television does the same thing. We glorify use of guns for solving problems. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, machine gun carrying type characters are often glorified. And while the television industry has been constantly saying, no, 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 people know it's fiction. It's not affecting their behavior. Albert Bandura did multiple research projects on the influence of violent programming on observers. And what he found was you and I can watch The Godfather and not turn into a serial killer because we have positive offsetting parental role models. But Hmm. if we lack that, if we're neglected, if we are really in a psychological situation where we're looking for something to hang on to, those people can be hugely influenced by negative role modeling, as we see with copycat shootings in this country. Right. So... He became a thorn in the side of Hollywood with his research that showed very clearly that violent programming leads to some level of violence among observers. Hmm. Interesting. 
Yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention was norm shifting, as you've spoken about, you know, it's happening all the time. For example, in a previous episode we had with Dr. Sarah Conley, she talked about how this idea of absolute autonomy is quite flawed and that we're always being influenced by something or the other, whether it's through family, culture, media, social media, politics, religion, etc. And while some of these influences can be quite positive, as they are in so many of your shows, others, like Alan mentioned, can be manipulative in that they're trying to get us to do something that may not be in our best interest, such as the rampant consumerism. Yes. Advertising is intended to get people to buy products. Exactly. It sounds like you have not received any backlash in that regard from viewers and listeners, but has anyone talked about your programming being perceived as manipulating people with any hidden agendas? Certainly, there are questions of, are we doing mind control? Are we trying to manipulate the audience? And so, in fact, Sabido went to a team of ethicists when he started this methodology and said, what is the sort of ethical conclusion about modeling positive behavior in an entertainment program? And the conclusion was, if you're opening the blinders that people have because of cultural realities and showing real consequences of different behaviors and showing how to make a transition, you're actually operating in a very ethical way. If you're only saying drink Coke and nothing else, you're not opening people's blinders. You're trying to narrow their choices. So I think what we're doing is the opposite of manipulation, but it also raises the question of how do we address the rampant consumerism in the West? Mm -hmm. And I've often said, I'm not sure people would stop to watch a recycling soap opera but there certainly are ways, and we've done this in several of our programs, that we can address environmental and consumption behaviors in the context of a show that's mostly about family life. Family life, hmm. love, and romance make for good stories, whereas some environmental issues will cause people's eyes to glaze over Right. if you're trying to entertain them with something like carbon dioxide. <laughs> so it's important to incorporate that where we can. One of the issues in this society is we've decided that broadcast channels are to be owned by private enterprises and they can make money selling products. And as a result of that, we're up against networks that want to sell those products or want to influence the audience to buy those products. And so coming out with an anti-consumer message inherently is a bit difficult. But certainly what we have done in a number of programs is address some aspects of consumption in the context of a program. And I'll give you just two examples. In Western Democratic Republic of the Congo, we partnered with Jane Goodall Institute mm -hmm. to model giving up consumption of bushmeat as a way of helping preserve biodiversity. And it was quite successful with the audience. And in Rwanda, with a program that dealt primarily with reproductive health, we also addressed reforestation. And one of the characters who had originally been opposed to family planning and wouldn't let his wife use family planning found that the family was outgrowing his ability to feed them with the farm he had. So he cut trees in the national park on a hillside behind his property, and he caused a landslide that wiped out his house and killed one of his children. And then he reformed, and he replanted the area. And the Ministry of Environment was very excited about this storyline, and there was research on the buyers of tree seedlings, finding that 11% of them, when asked why they had come to buy tree seedlings, named that program. So we can have influence on environmental issues, and we recognize that since consumption is the other half of the equation in terms of human impact on the planet, this is a huge area of need and needs a lot of thought as to how to build in simpler, sustainable lives into programming where we're modeling for a large audience. Yeah. Now, you tried most of your shows by far in the developing countries. You mentioned the East Los High the Hulu show about mainly teenage pregnancy. Have you been trying other initiatives focusing on overdeveloped countries and with these kind of consumption messages you've just mentioned about? We have. We have not had other shows on the air in the U.S. until 
this past month. So we are now doing a whole bunch of different projects and self-producing two programs. So one of them now on the air as a podcast is called Crossing the Line. And it's about the lives of women who must cross state lines to access abortion. Mm -hmm. So that is clearly a growing issue in the U.S., And then second, Gloria Steinem is working with us on a program that will be another self-produced podcast called State of Women that will go on the air in November. But we also have television serial dramas set in places like Harlem and Appalachia and Texas. We have docudramas and documentaries, a whole bunch of projects that are in development that are seeking distributors and or funders to help them become reality. The U.S. is a fragmented and very competitive media market, so it's a hard place to reach a huge percentage of the population with any broadcast. But we see the importance of doing this in part because many of these programs get exported all over the world. So I've had people in Uganda telling me that they are watching East Los High because you can buy it in pirate video shops there. (laughs) And I went into one of those pirate video shops when I was in Kampala and asked the man in the store, how is it selling? And he said, it's about even with Desperate Housewives. (laughs) Wow. That's pretty popular. Yeah, that would be great to develop more storylines that deal with overconsumption in uh, rich countries. We've actually explored with a number of institutions, including Stanford University, doing a project that addresses climate-related behaviors. Of course, addressing family size is a climate-related behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, Brian O'Neill at University of Colorado found, to summarize his very detailed analysis, that roughly a quarter of what is necessary to avoid catastrophic climate change could be achieved through smaller family norms and promotion of family planning. So it's not unimportant to address this as part of the climate issue, but there are many other consumption behaviors that need a lot of information and role modeling for the audience on how do they achieve this and why should they. And that they can be just as happy and satisfied without waste-producing status markers. So as a last question, what keeps you going over the decades you've spent working how many 50 years on this issue on sustainable population? This month marked 51 years in this field. And I guess what keeps me going is two things. One is we're seeing success. And, you know, in some countries, and I'll mention again Ethiopia, in one two-year program, we saw fertility rate drop nationwide by an entire child. So we can see real success. So it's rewarding. And we know from the tens of thousands of letters and text messages we received, it's helping people in their lives. And so it's very rewarding work. It's also the case that there's a huge distance to go. We're not reaching enough people. We need to be in far more countries. We need to be on the air constantly and not just whenever we land a contractor grant in a particular country. So there's a huge challenge ahead of us in order to use this strategy to bring about sustainability. And when you think about it, there is no issue more important than sustainability if the system collapses. Right. You know, it's not only an environmental issue, it's a human rights issue and a public health issue. It will create untold suffering. So it's not only urgent, but critically important for the future of the planet. And I think one of the things I hope will happen in the next few years is that we'll partner with larger institutions and be in more countries on the air at any one time. Yeah, I've heard it mentioned that there's a Entertainment Education Institute might be developed in Mexico, is it? We are working with Argos Media Group hmm. to develop a training institute for writers and producers in the use of entertainment education. And so we're very excited about that. And once people have gone through this training, as we've seen with our own writers for East Los High, they then are not afraid to address issues. In fact, the issues make it more real to the audience, more interesting to the audience. What they have to avoid is hitting people over the head with issues Mm -hmm. and making it too issue heavy and scaring the audience away. Yeah. But once they know how to do it in a way that both is entertaining and brings about positive change, we think there'll be more people doing it. So Argos produces a lot of people who end up going into 
the major networks in Mexico. And at some point, this institute, we expect, will also expand and be more global in its reach, but it's just getting started in Mexico. Oh, that sounds obviously that you've found a nice mix of strategies that are so effective in creating positive social change. It just seems like it's a matter of really scaling up the work that you are doing uh, instead of reinventing the wheel and trying other strategies. We're going to have to keep talking to you beyond this podcast episode. You know, how can we bring some of the work you're doing into other organizations that are population and consumption and sustainability oriented so that we can become a much more united front on these issues. Wow, what a a terrific interview that was, Bill. Thank you so much. Well, really appreciate your doing the interview. Happy to participate in this and happy to help other organizations working on population and sustainability issues understand the importance of storytelling because all of us can do more. And we've seen some great examples of humor and other forms of storytelling in this field, but there's also a lot of hand-wringing and overload of information and it doesn't do a whole lot of good. So anyway, delighted to do this. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Overpopulation Podcast. Visit populationbalance.org to learn more and to share feedback or guest recommendations, write to us using the contact form on our site or by emailing us at podcast at populationbalance.org. If you feel inspired by our work, please consider supporting us using the donate button. Also, to help expand our listenership, please consider rating us on whichever podcast platform you use. Until next time, I'm Nandita Bajaj, thanking you for your interest in our work and for all your efforts in helping us all shrink toward abundance.